in May of this year, just a couple months ago, a journalist was interviewing sci-fi legend William Shatner. Wow. Uh, Of course, he's known primarily for portraying Captain James T. Kirk in the long-running, actually only about two years running, um, original Star Trek television series and also appearing in the movies that followed. Uh, Shatner just turned 90 this past March, and he was asked toward the end of the interview uh, what he wished his 20-year-old self knew that his 90-year-old self knew now. His response was this, and I quote, Here's an interesting answer. I'm glad I didn't know, because what you know at 90 is this. Take it easy. Nothing matters in the end. What goes up must come down. If I'd known that at 20, I wouldn't have done anything. (laughs) Think about what he said there. Nothing matters in the end. That seems like a sad conclusion to reach, doesn't it? From a life filled with everything that most people want, wealth, fame, fortune. Can you imagine living that way? Go, go ahead. Take a moment. Think about your life. Think about your career. Think about your education. Think about your family situation. Think about the love you've experienced in your life. Think about your hobbies. Think about your dreams, your ambitions. Do you have some pictures in your mind right now? Apply Shatner's conclusion to your own life as absolute truth. Nothing matters in the end. Think about that. What difference would it make to how you live? How you plan for the future? How you spend your money? The people that you spend time with? How would you do things differently if nothing truly mattered in the end? Would you go on living? Or would you end your life? Would you live with reckless abandonment of your moral principles and just fill up on all the pleasures of this life without any sense of restraint? Would you become a criminal, stealing and robbing and killing anyone who gets in your way? Why not? If nothing matters. At first glance, when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, it might seem to express the same mantra as Bill Shatner. After all, one of the key statements in the book, it's repeated 38 times. It's found first here in chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All 
is vanity. Vanity. Empty. Meaningless. The word literally describes smoke or vapor. Here today, gone the next moment. It's the same way James references our lives. Do you remember in James 4, verse 14, James asked the question, For what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If that is all true, then why should we even study the Bible? Especially Ecclesiastes. Well, that's my task this morning, to convince you of the necessity of studying this great book. Can we find in this book the meaning of life that we're after? As we begin this quest, this search for meaning that will take us over the next year, I want to lay out for you briefly this morning four foundational truths, four cornerstones, as it were, that that we can build on in the weeks ahead as we open up this book. Here's the first truth. Ecclesiastes is part of inspired Scripture. Ecclesiastes is is part of inspired Scripture. The name of the book, Ecclesiastes, comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which means assembly or meeting. It reflects the apparent purpose of this book, to present to a great assembly the findings of the most important research project in the world, the quest for the meaning of life. The title that the author of Ecclesiastes uses of himself also describes this public speaking function. It's translated in different ways, depending on what translation of the English Bible that you have. It's translated here in our, the translation we use, the English Standard Version, the ESV. It's translated, the preacher. You see that in verse 1. In other versions, it's translated, the teacher. It's translated, the philosopher. You know, if he was presenting his findings at a major convention today, downtown Indianapolis, he might show up and be billed as the keynote speaker. Another way to think about it. But in thinking about this book as Scripture, perhaps the clearest verse that points us to this truth is found in the last chapter of the book. So let's turn over there. It won't take you long. It's not a big book. Chapter 12. And verse 11. By the way, there are pew Bibles, the little black books right ahead of you if you want to follow along uh, with us. Feel free to grab one of those and use it. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the scriptures of your own, feel free to take it with you. Um, In the front, you'll find a table of contents, and uh, you can find Ecclesiastes there. Follow along with us. Chapter 12 and verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
Now, that word shepherd is capitalized, rightly so, in the ESV here, and it's God himself. He is the true author of all Scripture. So when we read Ecclesiastes, it's not only to hear its human author's voice, but to hear God's. The words of wisdom, this verse says, are given, given by the Lord, by the shepherd. By the way, the church has recognized Ecclesiastes as belonging to what we call the canon of Scripture, the collection of books that make up the Bible, since the Synod of Jamnia in A.D. 90. I knew you wanted to know that. The Synod of Jamnia. Now you've got some Googling to do after the service, right? In 90 A.D., so from the first century, the church has recognized this to be part of Scripture. And just like we would expect with any book of Scripture, when we look closely at Ecclesiastes, and we will look closely at Ecclesiastes even this morning, because if we believe, and we do, that this book, like all the other books in this Bible, 66 books in one Bible, if we believe that this is from God himself, then every word is important. And so we look closely at these books as we go from them verse by verse. When we look closely, we find something in Ecclesiastes that we find in every other book of the Bible, and that is we find allusions, connections to other places in other books of the Bible. When we read Ecclesiastes, you'll see and you'll notice that there are connections to the early chapters in Genesis. There are connections to the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jonah. In the New Testament, Matthew, Luke, John, Romans, and 1 Timothy. At least. How does that happen? How, how do books that are written hundreds and hundreds of years apart by different authors, how can they be interconnected? How can they repeat ideas and specific phrases so perfectly coordinated together? Well, it's because, as we believe, all of these books have the same author. God. But let's think about a second truth. So Ecclesiastes is part of inspired scripture. That's one reason to study it. It comes from God. The message, the words of the wise are from God. We need to hear them. A second truth, foundational truth. The author of Ecclesiastes, in this case the human author of Ecclesiastes, had a unique gift. Had a unique gift. Christians have historically understood the author of Ecclesiastes to be Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David. So do I, by the way. After all, that's what he calls himself in chapter 1, verse 1, the son of David. And if you look in the scripture, that narrows the list to about 19 prospects. At least that's how many sons of David are listed in scripture. You can read about all of them if you're interested in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Out of those 19 sons, the next phrase in verse 1 further identifies him as the king in Jerusalem. 
It also says down in verse 12, the king over Jerusalem. So that further narrows the possibilities to three of his sons, if we're being generous. Both Absalom and Adonijah proclaim themselves to be king, even though they never officially ruled. And a fellow named Solomon. But then the author writes, look down in chapter 1, verse 16. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now that statement, if you know anything about Scripture, anything about Old Testament history, that statement immediately signals to us that we're speaking about Solomon, doesn't it? Because back in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 12, it's recorded that very early in Solomon's reign as king, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the Lord came to Solomon in a vision, in a dream at night, and asked Solomon, what he would like for the Lord to do for him. He could pick anything. Almost like the genie in the bottle scenario, right? Except you've got one. And Solomon asked for wisdom and discernment. And the Lord says back to him in 1 Kings 3.12, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So you say, let's see, he's a son of David. He was king in Jerusalem, and he had this amazing gift of wisdom. Why is there any question about Solomon being the author of Ecclesiastes? Well, first reason is because he doesn't name himself. In the book, like he does in Proverbs, like he does in the Song of Solomon. He doesn't name himself here. This is the preacher speaking. Second, even if the preacher is Solomon, which seems to be pretty clear, right? The book is written in such a way that it appears that there is an author or an editor who is quoting the preacher, but who may be someone different than the preacher. When you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, and then also over in chapter 12, verses 9 and following, it seems like there's someone else speaking besides the preacher, about the preacher. All I would tell you in that regard is that this is not out of the norm when it comes to literature. Paul, in the New Testament, spoke of himself in the third person. And we saw last week in John 21 that the Apostle John may have done the same thing. So it's not uncommon for people to refer to themselves in the third person. But there may have been someone else who collected these sayings of Solomon and put them together. We don't know for sure. I think it's all Solomon. But when you think about Solomon's um, writing, what is clear is that what we have in Ecclesiastes sounds like Solomon too. And 
it's identified as his work. And, and if you're still not convinced that the son of David, the king of Israel, with a special gift of wisdom, isn't Solomon, you can also go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, you may still be there, and look at verse 9 where it says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. According to 1 Kings 4.32, Solomon spoke over 3,000 Proverbs and wrote the book of Proverbs, which we have in the Bible, which contains over 900 of them. So it's pretty certain that we're dealing with Solomon, the son of David. When you think about Solomon's writings in Scripture, consider this. Song, Song of Solomon was likely written when he was a younger man about to marry Proverbs was probably written when he was middle-aged with a son about to take the throne. Ecclesiastes was written more toward the end of his life. After all of his experiences can be taken into consideration. And so, in, in one respect, both King Solomon and Bill Shatner are looking back on life. From an old age. And interestingly, it seems like they come to similar conclusions. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But not entirely, as we'll see. Truth number three. Ecclesiastes contains wisdom that we need. Ecclesiastes contains wisdom that we need. What conclusion does Solomon reach in this lifelong research project that he's been conducting? Look at chapter 12 again. Verse 13, he gives it to us very clearly. Here's his thesis. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Ready for it? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, period. Fear of the Lord. That's a familiar theme for Solomon, isn't it? Earlier, he had written to his son in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the fear of the Lord is not only the end of the matter, it's also the beginning of the matter of getting wisdom, attaining true knowledge and understanding about life. And that's really what these kinds of books are all about. These kinds of books we call wisdom books, wisdom literature. One author puts it this way, quote, Wisdom literature asks, what does it mean to fear the Lord in the world the Lord has made? Along with Job, Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to be alive in a world that God made and called good, yet which has also gone so very wrong. Often in catastrophic ways, period. Sound familiar? We live in such a world too, don't we? A world God made, called good, but it's gone all wrong, hasn't it? 
These wisdom books are less familiar to us than many other parts of Scripture. I like uh, one writer describes it this way. The neighborhoods of Ecclesiastes are filled with wisdom streets. Many Christians have grown up traveling the prophetic roads of the Old Testament and the Pauline highways of the New Testament. Wisdom highways are less traveled. The Song of Solomon is like a back road brothel to us. Job is like a long stretch of desert road with no night light and no gas stations or rest stops for miles. James is like an old law building that doesn't seem to fit the gospel landscape. We drive around it and wonder if we should bulldoze it. Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. Looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. So most of us choose to get our lunch at a different shop on a less dreary corner of town. The wisdom books are like those neighbors at which we often smile, but with whom we rarely converse because they live on the other side of the tracks. Unquote. So in the weeks and months to come, one of our goals is to get to know these neighbors much better. And what will we find in biblical wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes? Well, we're certainly going to see some shared themes like we saw with fear of the Lord. And there's other themes like wisdom and folly. There are addresses like my son, which we hear a lot in Proverbs. We'll see a lot of Hebrew poetry. It's a little different than English poetry. It's not about rhyme. But you'll notice that it's Hebrew poetry, especially if you have a a modern English translation of the Bible, because you'll see that the Bible will indent those sections. In fact, you can see quite a long one there in chapter 1. There's a lot of other literary techniques, too. So if you're an English teacher, you're about to love this list. Other literary techniques that we find in Ecclesiastes include parallelism, metaphors, similes, hyperboles, alliterations, assonances. I had to look that one up. That's where the vowels are the same, or the sounds of the vowels are the same in multiple words. And even, Pastor Trey's favorite word, an onomatopoeia. There's even one of those in Ecclesiastes. We'll see Proverbs. We'll see short narratives. We'll read rhetorical questions. And we'll see a lot of practical admonitions. We'll hear a lot of, I saw this, I observed that, I experienced that, and then we'll also hear, you do this, you do this, you do this. What does all this look like in Ecclesiastes? Well, we'll draw your attention to them as we come across these texts from week to week. But just understand, as Pastor Greg alluded to this morning, this is a very different kind of book than we are used to studying on a Sunday morning. And there is wisdom here. Wisdom that can help us live in the day in which we live. 
That's the fourth foundational truth this morning. Truth number four. The message of Ecclesiastes is relevant in our day. The message is relevant in our day. Why do you fear death? Why are you frustrated at work? How do you find meaning in a crooked world? Ecclesiastes will speak to these concerns. Why does it always rain on the days when you don't bring your umbrella? Why is the line you join in the supermarket always quicker than the one that you don't? Or strike that, reverse it. Ecclesiastes can give you some help with that. How much control do you really think you have over your own job security? Over your own health? Over who you will meet in this life? Over what you'll be doing 10 years from now? Over what will, what will happen to housing rates and interest rates? Ecclesiastes can give us insight even on those issues. Leland Riken, who's a, who was a longtime professor at Wheaton College, writes that Ecclesiastes is the most contemporary book in the Bible. It exposes the mad quest to find satisfaction in knowledge, wealth, pleasure, work, fame, and sex. And another way to think about this book, the preacher isn't using this sermon, Ecclesiastes, to describe life as we expect it or life as we want it to be or as good theology would suggest it should be. Rather, the preacher describes life as it actually is under the sun. And friends, I'm going to tell you right now that that, that outlook is rather depressing at times. Pessimistic. Skeptical. The preacher doesn't pull any punches. He tells us like it is. In that sense, the preacher, Solomon, is a bit like Shatner. When we look around at us in this world in 2021 in Indianapolis and we see all the brokenness around us, all the disorder, all the hate, all the injustice, it may appear that in the end, nothing matters. But here is where Shatner and Solomon's paths split. Because Solomon doesn't just point us to the bad in life and curse it. He points to the God who alone can fix it. Shatner doesn't believe in God anymore. According to one interview, he believes in energy. And we're all connected by energy to animals, even inanimate objects. 
But over and over and over in Ecclesiastes, over and over again, you will be pointed to a real, personal, powerful God. A God who loves us in our brokenness. A God who created us. A God who is our shepherd. A God we must fear and obey and remember. Matthew 12, 42 records this. You'll recognize these verses. The queen of the south came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. All the wisdom that Solomon had acquired in his life was pretty astounding. It mesmerized leaders of state from other countries who would come from miles around like the Queen of Sheba to hear the wisdom of Solomon. That's not where the verse ends, is it? Matthew 12, 42. The Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And just in case you didn't know, Jesus is speaking about himself there. So Solomon may be the keynote speaker and present his findings, and we'll see them in all their stark reality. But Jesus is the main event. He is the one that all of Scripture points to, even in this very unfamiliar book of wisdom called Ecclesiastes. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up to the front for our final songs and I'll invite our leadership team to prepare for the Lord's table. As these people are moving and coming up here, what is the takeaway this morning? What is this book of Ecclesiastes calling out to us? Hey, you! That we should return Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to hear what it says. Well, like David, his father, who preceded him, and like the Lord Jesus, who would later come after him and eclipse him, we are meant to hear the preacher's words as, as if we who listen to them are a flock under the care of one shepherd. And this we are, right, brothers and sisters? John taught us that, didn't he? We just finished a series in the Gospel of John. Our shepherd calls us by name, holds us in his hands, and will never cast us out. And the Bible taught us that all of his sheep know his voice. We're going to hear that voice in this book. Don't be alarmed. You're going to hear the voice of your shepherd, the voice that you're accustomed to, the voice that you've grown to know and to love. You're going to hear that voice in this book. It's going to sound a little different sometimes than we are used to hearing it. But it is our shepherd's voice all the same. And we'll continue to follow that shepherd together. He is our hope. 
He is our only hope in life and in death. And friends, without the Lord Jesus, I think I might agree with Will Shatner. In the end, nothing really matters. Do what you want. Live like you want to. When you're dead, you're dead. But because Jesus exists, changes everything. And no longer do we have to walk around depressed, joyless, hurt, sick. as if nothing matters. Because everything that we do matters when we live it for the glory of Jesus Christ.